Chapter Seven of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Seven. About an hour after noon, we reached the village of Borton, where the servant of Chaucer's rich canon, the alchemist who could have paved with gold all the road to Canterbury Town. Overtook the pilgrims bound to the shrine of Thomas Becket. We too had our faces Canterburyward, and a remark upon the association of the locality with the pilgrimage described by the medieval poet with so much quaintness and humour led to many comparisons and contrasts, more or less felicitous, as we strolled through the village looking for what might seem to be the most eligible hostelry. Having made our selection, we sat down in the sanded parlour, which the curate said reminded him by its furniture and decorations of the leather bottle at Cobham, and awaited the serving of dinner with appetites sharpened by our long walk and the pure air. There are certain features of the public rooms of village inns in the south of England which are common to most of them: the same hard chairs. The same stuffed birds in the same square cases, the same varnished engravings in the same black frames, may be found in a very large proportion of the guest parlours of hostelries of this class. In how many, as I asked the curate, should we not find that old print of the stopper stopped, representing a rustic going through the woods on the eve of a fox hunt to close the apertures by which Reynard might run to earth? And finding himself to his dismay confronted with the evil one, our hostess was not long in producing a juicy and well-cooked steak, a dish of the mealiest potatoes, and a quart of bright amber-hued ale. Praise to the bonny faces of Kent! Just such a dinner I once had served at a moment's notice at a little hostelry in Sandwich. Beef steaks for breakfast at Raynham. Beefsteaks for dinner at Borton. At a little town in the southwestern corner of Dorsetshire, I was once unable to procure a steak because it was not market day, and at the best inn in a neighbouring village, I could obtain nothing but bread and cheese, the latter comestible as white and almost as hard as chalk, being presumably made of skimmed milk. What a contrast! And how loudly it proclaims the prosperity of Kent! Beautiful weather, gentlemen," said our host, bringing us in some tobacco and a further supply of the amber-hued ale. Fine weather for the hops," responded my clerical-looking non-clerical friend. "Yes, sir," responded Boniface, who was a very jolly-looking fellow. "And if it lasts, there will be a splendid crop this year. Such weather at this season ought to make glad the hearts of the farmers," observed my companion. It did ought to," rejoined our host. "But somehow or other, the farmers never do seem satisfied, much less thankful, whatever the weather is and however the crops are. Hop growers, especially, if the crop is light and prices are high, as they are apt to be, they grumble because they have so few to sell. If the crop is heavy, they grumble because prices are low." "You think that the farmers are a discontented section of the community?" Said I, anxious to gather the views of a man living in the midst of an agricultural district. 
"'The farmers, sir,' returned Boniface, striking a large hand sharply on the beer-stained table, "'are the most discontented men on the face of the earth. Always a-grumbling. If they see a cloud, they shake their heads at it and prophesy a bad harvest. If the sun shines, they declare the crops are being scorched up. And who ought to be better off than the Kentish farmer? The hops pay the rent, and the cows keep the pot boiling. They pay only half as much tax on their incomes as tradesmen do, and they are allowed a horse and a sheep-dog tax-free, while I can't keep a horse or a dog without paying taxes on them. Yet they grumbles. Rents is too high, taxes is too high, wages is too high. Yet they pay only the market value of land and labour, the same as tradesmen, who never get any abatement of rent, however bad trade is. And they are more likely taxed than any other class in the state. Rents and wages are higher in Kent than in many parts of England, I observed. But I suppose they would not be so if the average value of the produce was not much higher. They ought to be higher, sir, responded our host. Then they would have to farm better and the country would gain by it. And if they weren't able to go galloping about the country in the hunting season in scarlet coats and white cores, why should they expect to do it? If farming is such a bad game as they try to make us believe, why do they do it? And how can they do it? A very pertinent question, I observed. Our host was now called away, and we, having lighted our pipes, that is, the curate and myself did, our friend not favouring the consumption of the Nicotian weed, stepped upon the dusty road once more, and faced the pleasant rise of Borton Hill. Before us stretched the extensive woods formerly forming Blean Forest, with the white road winding between them, Hearn Hill rising on our left, and the grey tower of a village church peeping out of them on the right. "'In those woods,' said I, as we walked gently up the hill, "'on the left of the road was quenched in blood "'one of the most remarkable impostures of modern times. "'For it was there that a volley from the muskets "'of a military detachment from Canterbury "'terminated the career of John Nicol Tom.' "'That was before my time,' observed the curate. "'Pretended to be an incarnation of the Saviour, didn't he?' "'That was towards the close of his career,' I replied. "'The affray created a great sensation at the time, "'when gross ignorance prevailed among the labouring classes in the rural districts, "'and the changes then lately made in the laws for the relief of the poor "'had created profound discontent among them. "'An ignorant mob led by a madman.' said my other companion, with a sigh. "'Let us hear what this old fellow has to say about it,' said the curate, lowering his voice, as we overtook a bent, grey-headed, sun-browned man, who was walking slowly in the same direction as ourselves. I will be bound he had a finger in the pie. "'Was it not here that the riots were some years ago?' I inquired of the old man. "'You mean when the men were killed in the wood yonder?' he rejoined, after a momentary hesitation. "'When the redcoats were sent for from Canterbury, and Lieutenant Bennett was shot by Sir William Courtney?' "'Yes. 
Yonder's the wood where the fighting was, there on the left hand. If you go through the gate on the top of the hill, Courtney's Gate it has been called ever since. You may find the very spot with Courtney's name and the names of the men who were shot down with him, cut in the bark of the trees. I suppose you knew some of them, the curate observed. Them as belonged to this place I did, but they come from all the villages round about. It was a terrible sight, sir, and I hope as I may never see such a sight again. What did you think you were going to do? the curate asked. Well, sir, said the old man, hesitating a little before he replied, we was poor and ignorant, and we thought we couldn't be worse off come what might, and Sir William he told us there should be an end of it all, and all wrongs be righted, and no harm come to any of us if we stood by him. A few more questions elicited from him a narrative of the exciting incidents which preceded the fatal affray in Bossenden Wood, which the reader will understand the better for first learning something of Tom's life and previous connection with the neighbourhood. Except that he was a native of Truro, very little is known of the former until his first appearance at Canterbury in 1832, when he quartered himself at the Rose Inn on the parade, calling himself Sir William Courtney, and assuming the style and title of King of Jerusalem and Knight of St. John. He was a man of singularly striking appearance, closely resembling the ideal portrait of Jesus of Nazareth, as depicted by the old masters, and affecting in his costume the flowing robes of eastern countries. Nothing was known about his antecedents, and no information concerning them was ever volunteered by himself, but by his manners and language he impressed those with whom he came in contact with the idea that he was an intelligent and well-informed foreigner, possessing almost unlimited wealth. The first general election under the Reform Act was then impending, and just as the sitting members were congratulating themselves on the prospect of an uncontested and inexpensive return, the oriental-looking stranger at the Rose announced himself as a candidate. In his printed addresses to the constituency, he declared himself an advocate of the abolition of tithes, the repeal of the excise duty on malt, and other changes likely to find favour with a rural community. And in one of them he indicated a claim to the noble mansion and estate of Hales Place, belonging to a family of that name, and since made famous by its introduction into the evidence in the extraordinary Titchborne trial. His candidature was, as might have been expected, a failure, but it elevated him into a certain degree of local importance, which was probably all that he anticipated from it. His next public appearance tended, however, less to his advantage. He gave evidence at Maidstone against some men who were charged with smuggling, and, his statements being proved to be unfounded, he was prosecuted for perjury, and committed, on the ground of insanity, to the county lunatic asylum at Barming Heath, near Maidstone. His subsequent actions tended strongly to support the view then taken of the state of his mind, but it is difficult, in the analysis of such a character, to determine how much is due to mental aberration, and how much to inordinate self-approbation and wild ambition. 
However insane he may have been, he had craft enough to conceal the manifestations of a diseased intellect, and in a few years he obtained his release and returned to Canterbury, where he again established himself at the Rose. The amendment of the laws relating to the relief of the poor was at that time exciting the minds of the labouring classes throughout the country, especially in the rural districts, and Tom incited the poor people of the neighbourhood against it by long and violent harangues, delivered sometimes from the balcony of the rose and sometimes on the wastes of bleem. His seditious and inflammatory discourses gradually assumed a religious tinge, which became more blasphemous in proportion to the credulity of the persons whom he addressed, thus affording a further proof of the craftiness of his character. The climax came in a declaration that he was the saviour, in corroboration of which he displayed cicatrices on his hands, which he alleged were those of the wounds inflicted by the nails which had secured them to the cross. He should be with them for a time, he told his ignorant and credulous listeners, and then should be taken up to heaven in a cloud of glory. You surely did not believe those wild ravings, I said to the old man who trudged up the hill with us, and who prefaced his narrative with a brief account of what he had seen and heard at the first gathering of Tom's deluded followers which he attended. "'Well, sir, you see, we was all poor ignorant folk, and didn't know what to believe and what not to believe. There was many that doubted and scoffed at first, that come to be the strongest believers in him. And the women went quite wild about him, and they egged on the men, and then he talked us all into such a state of mind that we went as wild as the women, and would have gone through fire and water if he went before us. Every time I went to them meetings I found more men met together, till at last I believe every farming man in the village, and a good many more of all sorts, went to hear him. Well, the end of it was, he rode into Borton one morning, mounted on as fine a horse as ever I see, and dressed like you see Jesus Christ in the pictures, but carrying a sword and pistols. Men and women, boys and girls, all ran out to welcome him. The men he told to arm themselves and follow him, the rest were to stay at home. Then he rode down the lane that we have just passed, about a hundred of us following him, some with guns and some with hayforks, sickles, or anything that would serve for a deadly weapon and he led us through the lanes to a farmhouse at Fairbrook, a little place yonder, below Hearn Hill. There he set up a blue and white flag with a lion on it, a rearing up like, and he made a speech telling us that neither steel nor lead could harm him, and that if we had faith in him and followed wherever he led us, we should overcome all opposition, and not a hair of our heads should be hurt. It seemed true, for he fired a pistol at his own head, and then at the heads of two or three more, and nobody was harmed. When we saw that, we believed on him more than ever, and we swore to follow wherever he led. Then we marched off to Goodenstone, a village this side of Faversham, and then round to Hearn Hill again, where bread and cheese and ale were served out to us at a farmhouse. When we had rested a bit, we went to Dargate Common, just beyond the hill, where we all went down on our knees, while Sir William offered prayer for half an hour, 
as well as any minister as ever went into a pulpit. Then we went to a farm in the woods where we had more bread and cheese and ale, and slept in the barns. About three o'clock next morning, while the sky was yet grey, we were moving again, tramping over Hearn Hill and startling the blackbirds and thrushes from their sleep, and scaring the rabbits that were cropping the herbage on the skirts of the wood. Tramp, 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 all along the byway, setting every place we passed through in a commotion, wondering where we were going and what we were going to do. We got into Sittingbourne about six o'clock, and there we had breakfast, Courtney paying for all. And then, when we had rested, we started again, turning off the high road, and marching through Newnham, Eastling, Throwley, Seldwich, and Selling, spreading the excitement and commotion wherever we went, and halting in every village for Sir William to make a speech and draw the men on to follow him. At last we got back to Borton, wondering what it was all to end in, but resolute to do whatever we were set on to. There was some talk of marching through the woods to Hale's place and taking possession of it, but nothing was done next day, which was Sunday. And on Monday morning the first blood was shed, and that was the beginning of the end. We were all in a field, wondering what the next move was to be, when one of the farmers came with three constables, after a man who, as most of us had done, had left his work and broken his contract of service. As soon as Courtney saw these men coming towards us, he whipped out one of his pistols and fired. One of the constables fell dead, and the others and the farmer ran for their lives, spreading terror and excitement all through the village. Courtney drew his sword and hacked the body of the dead constable, which two of the men then lifted, gashed and bleeding, and threw into a ditch. Waving his bloody sword, he told us to follow him, and we all marched off into the heart of the wood, where he made a speech that worked us all up into a fever of excitement. Then we all went down on our knees, and Courtney offered a prayer, and a hymn was sung, all of us believing that there would soon be some fighting, and we should carry all before us, and do I don't know what. By and by we heard the tramping of feet along the lane by Barclay Lodge yonder, and we drew into the thickest part of the wood, those who had guns being posted in front. The constabulary sergeant had ridden into Canterbury after the man had been shot, and the magistrates had called upon the military for help, and were coming against us with every soldier in the city. Presently we heard them pushing through the bushes and the tall bracken, and then we saw their bayonets glittering in the sunshine, where it gleamed here and there through the branches of the oaks. Courtney made a sudden movement forward, and we saw a flash, and then the report of his pistol rang through the wood, and the startled birds flew in all directions, twittering and screaming. The next moment there was another flash, and a sharp rattling in our front, and I saw Courtney fall, and several poor fellows sinking on their knees amongst the bracken, or staggering against the trees. A wild cry was raised by the men, and those who had guns fired at the soldiers, and then there was a rush, and we saw the gleam of steel, and in a moment we were flying in all directions through the wood. Three soldiers had been shot, two of them mortally wounded, besides Lieutenant Bennett, killed by Courtney, and Courtney and sixteen of his men were left upon the ground, nine of them dead or mortally wounded, 
besides Courtney himself. Here the old man's story ended. The coroner's jury returned a verdict of justifiable homicide in the case of Tom and the nine labourers whose blood had stained the spring flowers and bright green moss of Bossenden Wood, and one of willful murder against the madman and eighteen of his deluded followers in the case of Lieutenant Bennett and the two soldiers. The captured rioters were subsequently tried at Maidstone, when three of them were sentenced to be transported, two for life and the third for fourteen years, and most of the others to various terms of imprisonment. Tom was buried at Herne Hill a few days after the affray, and so great were the alarm and excitement that still prevailed throughout the district that the burial service was hurriedly performed, and every allusion to the doctrine of the resurrection was omitted from it. Was this omission sanctioned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, I wonder, lest it should seem to countenance the belief of the Tomites in the expected resurrection of their leader? But though one woman expressed a firm belief that he was not dead, even when she was shown his corpse in a coffin, and another acknowledged that she had carried a vessel of water half a mile in order to pour some of the fluid between his lips, in the event of his being slain, because he had told her that he would be resuscitated by that means, the delusion seems to have quietly died out soon after the fatal termination of his career. Many mementos of this melancholy affair may, however, still be found in the villages and hamlets in which the delusion existed. Tom's long black hair and beard, which were cut off by the surgeons, fell into the hands of one of his disciples, by whom they were treasured with the deepest reverence. It is said that fancy prices were given for locks of his hair not only by his followers, but even by respectable inhabitants of Canterbury and its vicinity, who were actuated by a morbid desire for the acquisition of such relics. Even the corpse of the blasphemous impostor would have been disinterred if a strict watch had not been kept on the grave for months after the interment. The names and initials of Tom and several of the deluded men who fell with him may still be seen, rudely cut with clasp-knives, on the trees in Bossenden Wood. The tree against which Tom fell was stripped of all its bark by the crowds whom the tragedy attracted to the spot, and his autograph was eagerly sought after and bought with gold. Nor was this morbid curiosity confined to believers in the impostor or to the poor and ignorant, for many ladies and gentlemen of good social position visited Borton, some travelling long distances, for the purpose of seeing the spot where he fell, obtaining some memento of him, and stroking his horse. We had reached the summit of Borton Hill while the old man was telling his story, and now paused to look over the surrounding country. Large tracts of woodland stretched away on either hand, the bright greenery fading into blue in the distance, with a light streak on the northern horizon which we knew to be the sea, and a depression in the opposite direction marking the valley of the Stour. From a point a little beyond the gate leading into Bossenden Wood, and which is called Courtney's Gate, we had a very distinct view of Canterbury Cathedral, and the towers of three or four village churches 
rose above the woods on the right and the left. Bossenden Wood, which abounds in picturesque glades and hollows, with many chestnut trees mingling with the oaks of which it chiefly consists, is a portion of the wild tract called Bleen Forest, or the Bleen, which formerly stretched from Faversham to Canterbury, and thence to Herne Bay, and of which many extensive woods still exist. There the badger, which is now seldom seen either in Kent or Surrey, still has its haunts, and there, too, may sometimes be seen the rare yellow-throated variety of the martin, commonly called the pine martin, which resembles the weasel in form, but is larger than that fierce little carnivore, and has a bushy tail, like that of the squirrel. These extensive woods seem, indeed, to abound with attractions, not only for the naturalist, but also for lovers of the picturesque, and for ramblers who wish for shade and seclusion, far from the madding crowd of the seaside resort and the shriek of the railway whistle. The northerly footpath from Borton Hill is continued by a green lane to Lambers Wood, and thence to Whitstable, and is crossed on the south side of the latter wood by another lane leading from Graveney to Bleen, and passing over Honey Hill and Bleen Common. By bearing to the right and following the course of the stream which rises in Bossenden Wood and flows into Herne Bay, a little to the eastward of Whitstable, the latter lane may be struck, and followed to the road which connects Canterbury with Whitstable, from which point there is a footpath which, leaving Bleen Church to the right, passes through Thorndon Wood and thence to Herne Bay. It will be needful, however, to bear in mind that woods, like commons, do not always bear the same name on all parts of their borders, and that Bossenden Wood is sometimes called Bleen Wood, and the eastern portion bordering on Harbledown Short Wood, while the western portion of Thorndon Wood bears the name of Bleen Lower Wood, and another Bleen Wood may be found farther east, near the village of Herne. The tall Campanula, known as the Canterbury Bell, blooms abundantly in all these beautiful woods. End of chapter 7